Voice of San Diego podcasts are sponsored by the Bob Nelson Charitable Fund, honoring the San Diego Harbor Police Foundation. Welcome to the Voice of San Diego podcast in partnership with News Radio 600 Kogo. I am Scott Lewis, the CEO and Editor-in-Chief at Voice of San Diego, joined as always by Andrew Keats, Assistant Editor. Hello, Andy. Hello, Scott. And Managing Editor Sarah Libby. Hello, Sarah. Back from the bear who is big. Yeah, I am. Hello. (laughs) We have a lot coming up on the show today. A city council candidate got himself all twisted up with his party and local prosecutors this week. We'll explain what he's accused of and how it got weird this week. We also have an update on our quest to get more information about how the coronavirus is spreading in San Diego. And Andy had a great story this week about the history of land use zoning in San Diego and specifically how single family homes came to dominate it. Of the land where you can build homes within the city of San Diego, 70% of it is set aside for single family homes. Will that ever change? Spoiler alert, not for a while. But first, before we get going, I wanted to let you know we are in the middle of one of those things where we ask for money a lot, and I need to do that here. Uh, We need to raise $100,000 by the end of August to pay for and continue on the trajectory we need to be on to pay for all the things that we are committed to for the year, including employee salaries, including this podcast, all kinds of things. When people donate, they can give us a little note, and here's some we've gotten. I need clear, honest information, says Lynn from Vista. Quote, we need good journalism, and it won't be for free. That's Martin of Carmel Valley, uh, my neighbor here in Ocean Beach. Quote, I support your work and especially want to support the ballot measure reviews that you provide. Shout out to you, Sarah. Hey, thanks. We've got Jack Duncan in La Mesa who says, nothing is as entertaining or as baffling as San Diego politics, and you guys tell the story. Thank you so much to everybody who's supporting one of the ways to support is just with a minimum uh, membership. That's $3 a month. That's a cup of coffee a month. It's, it's kind of like a, it's barely a cup of coffee a month these days. Go to VOSD.org support to donate today. That's VOSD.org support. Guys, happened to me this this week so I, I was doing an interview with kpbs you know i've been really enjoying this whole world of like not wearing business clothes all the time i always felt like i had to always have something barely nice on so that if i ever had to go on tv or meet somebody or whatever spontaneously i'd be all right well claire tregister from kpbs wanted to do an interview about uh this uh, lawsuit we're going to talk about later for uh, covid19 data and i get on there and she's like oh uh can we get this adjusted so that you know, we might use this for TV. And I'm like, well, you didn't say that. And she's like, don't worry, you look great. Don't worry, it's fine. Uh, I'm like, well, maybe I should get another shirt. No, no, it's, it's great. It's great. Let's go. Let's go. So we do it. And then it turns into a video story. And then she posts it and it gets onto that rate my room, rate my Skype room on the, on the World Wide Web, hundreds of thousands of followers. And there's me with my makeshift background and a, and a t-shirt like I just rolled out of bed on a Sunday. I felt like I met my celebrity crush and that's what she thinks I look like. Uh, did you have... Well, it, it is what you look like. <laughs> <laughs> it is what you brought. Yeah. 
Um, so do you, I have to go back to like the business world where like I'm all like dressed up all the time just in case something like that happens, or nobody usually cares about it anyway, so I won't have to worry. Your choices are to uh, be prepared in all situations or embrace the new reality, uh, and people just are forced to understand what you're bringing to the table, such as me always wearing tie-dye now, which is just now something that people who talk to me have to be prepared for. Look, I am sympathetic to your point um, that you should be given some extra points for the fact that it was your garage. I mean, they weren't commenting on your wardrobe. They were commenting on your backdrop. Yeah, I got a 7 and out of 10. for a garage, I think you've got a good setup. Thank you. That means a lot, Sarah. Yeah. You didn't Thank have you. a copy of Power Broker, uh, which if, you, <laughs> yeah. if you've been watching cable news these days is like almost like – intentionally placed in the view of every camera oh like a bit or I, I think it's become a bit at this point i think initially it was an organic development that all these political reporters and self-declared savvy pundits like had to have their copy of of power broker and now it's become something that people are so tuned in on that they uh <laughs> that they they're actually i'm not actually the book I'm not actually familiar with the book. Which what? Which one is this? Sorry, uh, oh, not a boy. good political reporter. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Robert Caro's book about. Uh, oh, yeah, uh, about uh, Robert Moses and the right. uh, creation of New York City. Right, that's great. Mm -hmm. I'll have to look into that. All right, let's go into some of these issues. So let's talk about that city council candidate, Kelvin Barrios. There are nine city council districts. Uh, District 9, the one that was created 10 years ago, first occupied or represented by Marty em Emerald. Uh, later, Georgette Gomez took the seat four years ago, and now she's leaving to run for Congress. And her former employee, Kelvin Barrios, has been running along against uh, Sean Elo, who's also running for the seat. Uh, his campaign got a little bit weird this week. This weekend, first, the UT reported the district attorney's office was investigating allegations of embezzlement by Barrios. But then Barrios came out afterwards and said, no, she's not. And then the district attorney sent out a really maybe unprecedented statement to you. Let me just read this part. She says, well, Kelvin appropriately resolved his... Oh, wait, that was, that was Gomez's thing. The district attorney said... What again? She said, we don't they confirm or deny. Yes. We do not confirm or deny the existence of any investigation. However, we have not resolved or dismissed any complaint on this matter. So, right. so we kind don't of confirm or deny. Seems like a confirmation to me. It does seem like a I mean, I guess you could theoretically say that, like, we just decided not to look into it, but, but like, that doesn't mean we've dismissed it, um, but it was it's certainly a, treated by Georgette Gomez as uh, a given that there is an investigation underway. The way she framed her statement saying um, that I will not be uh, actively supporting or participating in Kelvin's campaign until the DA resolves uh, her the inquiry. Um, so sort of just stipulates that, yes, there is this DA investigation taking place. So this brings up a point that I always am trying to drive home during election season. Look, I get that like a lot of political calculations go into who you support and whose support you're courting and whatnot. But like 
you don't have to endorse anyone yeah. ever yeah. is a thing that politicians could keep in mind. Yeah, and we've heard of, of non-denial denials, right? This is maybe the first in the wild existence of a non-confirmation confirmation. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, to your point, like Georgette Gomez's support is probably the maybe the biggest of the symbolic support Totally. That he could hope for. She represents the district, ostensibly is pretty popular there, was his boss. It's basically right. saying like, hey, he can do this job well. And for her to say, I'm going to pause that conviction, because mm-hmm. it's not like she's really, she's got her own campaign. She's running the city in a way. She's not helping him a ton, probably. What this means is like this, this world where I support him is on pause. Yeah, which is, right. I, it's actually not a... Uh, that's not a classification of endorsement that I'm aware of, like a, yeah. a paused endorsement. I, like, yes. I'm, in, I'm familiar with endorsing. I'm familiar with not endorsing, but a paused endorsement is new to me. Um, and rescinding. And rescinding, I'm, I'm familiar with that. that. People certainly do. Yes, yeah. but, but pausing, I'm not familiar with. But, you know, uh, to your point about uh, not endorsing being an option, all, all evidence I have over the years of, of – covering politics in this town is that Georgette and Kelvin were, were pretty close that it, this isn't a like just another staffer who decided to run and she was kind of like put in an awkward position that it would be like read a certain way if she didn't endorse him my understanding has always been that they are close so uh let's talk let's try to understand a little bit more behind what's behind all of this and I think what uh, so we we mentioned the word embezzlement what do we know that he has discussed? He mentioned that he's made mistakes. What do we know? And what are the questions out there about what he's allegedly done? Yeah. So there was an FPPC fine that was like fully adjudicated and he was given the maximum fine they could give. Um, the FPPC is... This is the state agency that does the... Um, if you do something wrong with your campaign, you get money from the wrong person, you give it to the wrong... They fine you. It's like the city's ethics commission, but for Precisely. the state. So he was fined, um, and it was for transactions totaling about $8,000 across two different groups. One was a school board campaign that he was the treasurer for, and one was a state... Uh, Democratic political club that he was also the treasurer for. And in both instances, there were a a series of transactions um, that uh, appeared to be of personal benefit, not for uh, something directly related to the campaign or the club um, that he was spending on himself. Uh, And then he was unable to provide receipts or documentation or invoicing to suggest that, that that wasn't the case. And that FPPC, when they levied that fine, he, he his defense to them was sort of that this was like a paperwork problem that he he was unable to to clarify it, but it was it was all a big mistake. Um, and the FPPC, and in, in what I took to be relatively strong wor- strong wording, the way that their judgments typically come out, seemed to say, look, this is two separate campaigns with a pattern of behavior, um, and seemed to come down on the fact that he had he had broken the these laws that he he was spending money that belonged to this campaign or this club for his own personal benefit not because he needed to um as part of the these you know his his work with those clubs 
Now, they're the the DA investigation, the or the uh, alleged DA investigation, is about something different, but also very similar, which is that he was a uh, he was a treasurer with a local Democratic club here in San Diego County. And uh, they have been made aware of a series of similar transactions um, where, that appear to be or are alleged to be uh, to his own personal benefit. The FPPC was alerted to this as well and declined to look into it because they said since his was a volunteer position, not a paid position, that it um, d- doesn't fit within their, the, their purview, that they're, they're not statutorily allowed to look into it. Um, and so that's when it got bounced over to the to the DA, uh, and it appears that the DA is looking into it. So you have three separate clubs at three separate times, but all of the allegations are generally similar, which is that um, he was using, you know, uh, he was spending money from those accounts on himself in ways that have maybe a passing plausibility to um, to benefit the club, but also benefit him. For instance, like buying a suit at Men's Warehouse. Did he buy a suit at Men's Warehouse because he needed to wear a suit to some sort of meeting and there was a, an expense that he could put on on the club? Or was he just buying a suit for himself and using the club's money? And that's kind of where, where the, the, the situation turns. Obviously, that, that's the similar type thing that got uh, Duncan Hunter... In trouble yeah i was gonna say did he buy any shorts at the <laughs> golf shop yeah ship any bunnies across country all right well we'll be following that i think a lot of people are interested in in getting not to who's investigating confirmation stuff that's that's kind of the class of story uh along the lines of we might sue type stories uh but if we can get deeper down into like what actually happened or didn't um that's what we're aiming for well uh, one of the things, uh, speaking of uh, who might be suing or who is, we, of course, talked recently about our lawsuits to get information from local agencies about their response to the COVID-19 pandemic. But one of those cases has really resonated with a lot of people out there, uh, including a lot of people who have been emailing and contacting us. And that's the issue of getting information from the County of San Diego about the outbreaks that continue to occur uh, the spread and tr- of transmissions of COVID-19 from people to people. The county has conducted more than 36,000 investigations into where and how people have picked up the SARS-CoV-2 virus. So every day we get a, a bullet list. It kind of reads like this one from, a, from Tuesday. It says, one new community outbreak was reported on August 24th in a, quote, healthcare setting. In the last seven days, 21 community outbreaks were confirmed. And we're, it's driving us nuts because it says when you it always says that healthcare setting or restaurant bar or business, but nothing about where, nothing about how many people got it, nothing about whether they were outdoors or indoors or complying or not, nothing about whether they were repeat places. Um, and this matters because the number of outbreaks has remained steady, even as though all these other metrics have gone down. Uh, the county says that the number must get down to seven over seven days. They're at 21. Right now, San Diego Unified School District picked that up as a measure for their own before they would open schools physically. They said that has to get down to seven. Uh, So KBBS reporter Taryn Mento asked the other day, public health officer, the county public health officer, Wilma Wooten, what they were doing to control these outbreaks. 
Here's how that exchange went. And just to kind of ask in a little bit of a different way, um, we still are hitting our own trigger on community outbreaks and, and Voice of San Diego Scott Lewis just pointed this out on social media. You know, mm -hmm. we've seen all of our, a lot of the numbers improve, but not this one. And this one was intended to inform you all when more restrictions may be needed. We've had a lot of restrictions already put into place. So what are we going to do about this number that, you know, has come down a little bit, but has no, not gone down to what we want it to? Are you speaking of outbreaks? Community outbreaks. Yes, community outbreaks. Well, we will continue to monitor and do the same things we have always been doing in terms of depending on where the sector is. If it's restaurants, uh, we have a great uh, relationship and uh, partnership with our Department of Environmental Health uh, where uh, we have uh, staff that are then deployed to a particular restaurant and go in and conduct an assessment of what uh, strategies need to be uh, improved upon. And that has always worked well, and that is working well during the uh, COVID-19 uh, uh, pandemic. Just, just going to keep going. Just going to keep doing the same thing. Yeah, it really we're, like we're makes our case for us in a way and that if they're not going to divulge any details about what they're doing to contain the outbreaks and how they're mitigating them, then at least the public should have information about where they are and what the circumstances were so that they can prevent, you know, exposure on their own so they can take matters into their own hands and make decisions, um, you know, based on some of this more detailed information. I think that's right, and I think the other case it makes is that there is just a simple, there's a simple element of accountability that requires us to have these numbers. That we can't assess whether this ent this agency is doing its job well without having more information about what they're doing and how the virus is spreading. Um, and you know, like the what her answer here basically we're just going to keep doing what we do it's, it it leaves you with the inevitable conclusion that without this information you just have to take their word for it and m maybe we can have an after after action report whenever life returns to normal well that's exactly what i wanted to bring up is that i keep coming back to the state's audit of the county's performance um, during the hepatitis A crisis. And, you know, the main thing that they got dragged on was not providing more detailed information to the public, particularly about where outbreaks were happening. And, you know, the county had to sign off on that audit. They had, you know, some qualms with it, but they essentially had to sign and agree um, to take steps to do things better next time. And here we are probably faced with a pandemic much sooner than we thought we'd be in this situation again. And it's the same deal, like just clamming up and not giving out that information that we know they have. Yeah. And right now, so they send out these updates and it says uh, restaurant, bar or business setting or whatever. If, if this is a major trigger and if it's being used to decide whether to open schools, for example, then the only conclusion we are allowed to make from it is that they should close all the restaurant and bars. Like if that needs to, if those outbreaks need to be controlled, they are not being controlled, then that's all they're letting us do. And, and so there's sort of two parts to me, like your point about the accountability, like how's it going? But then the second part is if, if you're not going to release more data, then that's the broad conclusion we have to make. If you want us to make more nuanced, uh, the conclusions about how to live life out of this, you've got to give us more data. You have to give us more clarity on does this, is this outdoor dining thing working, for example? Because if it's, if it is spreading the disease, it ain't. 
Yeah, there's a data and public information paternalism to this as well, which is that one of the the uh, ostensible reasons that we can't have this information is that it might, we, the way we use it might create a stigma or the way we use it might uh, inform poor choices because, uh, you know, I guess we won't be as careful with it as the county is when they make their determinations. But the problem is what they've left out here is largely useless. You know, what, what they've provided is largely useless. But if you wanted to make any decision with it, you would have to conclude that you'd be crazy to go to bars and restaurants because every every the one piece of information that it provides is where the outbreak happened. And the overwhelming majority of the time, it's bars and restaurants. So the, the idea that they can, they can um, control the release of information based on um, their own reasons about how people are going to consume it um, is belied by the fact that the way we're left to consume the information they are putting out uh, may not be very responsible at all. Yeah, so, well, it's a rare thing, but uh, public radio, KPBS, got fired up about this. You know it's hot when they get fired up. Uh, KPBS decided to join us on this lawsuit uh, I couldn't be more thrilled. Had a great conversation with them uh, this week. Uh, they are going to join up on it again. You know, if we want to have the county's main rationale for not giving us this information is because they don't want to shame or have people not cooperate when they are uh, being investigated um, about where these outbreaks are occurring or transmissions are occurring. Uh, you know, look, we could have that negotiation at some point about redacting of specific information, but they don't want to have it. And what's weird is there's a dissonance. They published an op-ed in the UT saying, like, we aren't going to release this information because it would do all this damage and do all this cooperation and stuff. But when they're actually referring and responding to our rough public records requests, they're like, oh, we're, we just haven't gotten to it yet. We're, you know, we haven't, we're going to look at the uh, documents and decide whether to release them or not. Uh, you know, and, and it, they're acting like it's a legal question about whether they are, but then they had their own leaders are like, no, we're not going to release that information. It's like, which, which is it? Well, neither of those are acceptable justifications for withholding records. So pick whichever one you want, but, but neither really works. Both are bad. Uh, yeah. the, the other thing, and I don't expect normal people to, to, to know this, but requesting public records is, is something that lawyers and journalists and uh, you know local gadflies do all the time. And one procedure within that, that process that is well laid out, that is practiced daily among government agencies across the state, is the redaction of specific identifiable information in records that are determined to be public. So the idea that like, no one knows that you could release all this information and simply redact the piece of information that you think is is um, needs to be protected is crazy. Everybody who deals in public records is very familiar with this process. It's not obscure. It happens most of the time. Uh, and so they've chosen to, to, to just pretend that uh, that's not an option. And I think that there's a cynical bet being made that enough people are unfamiliar with the public records process that they'll think it's compelling um, even though it's uh, preposterous if you are familiar with the process. Well, stay tuned for more updates, hopefully soon, about that uh, as it winds its way through the courts. But also, um, you know, send a note to um, the county saying you support the release of more comprehensive information. That helps us. Um, they, they need to, I think, do this both to help us 
create a better life out of this, find that equilibrium between life and seclusion, uh, and to um, allow us to scrutinize their decisions. Because I don't think anybody can look at what happened this summer and think everything went great because <laughs> it didn't go great and schools aren't opening on Monday as they should be and other things. So we're going to take a quick break. On the second half of the show, we're going to talk about San Diego's history of single-family housing and the zoning that's protected it for a century. We'll be right back. Stay tuned. Andy posted a um, great story this week with equal parts history and relevance to the current time, not only for um, plans for the future of how San Diego may look and feel and how we might address our housing shortage, but also that may help explain why, uh, you know, so much segregation exists in this community. You don't need to be that woke to realize that uh, there are a lot of white people in certain parts of the community and a lot of uh, people of color in others. And how that came to be is a really interesting history. Andy, let's start with the history. Uh, the American Project didn't start in on this continent with uh, single-family housing zones and commercial zones and industrial zones. Uh, about 100 years ago, we got our first zoning ordinance. Where did that come from? And uh, why did single-family homes emerge as as you know the the top of the pyramid really yeah so the the predecessor to what we you know know as modern zoning you know, use zoning or euclidean zoning was uh in the in 1910 and then for a number of years after that cities started passing um racially al aligned zones that cities could uh, restrict people from living in certain areas specifically based on their skin color um, that was rejected. That was overturned by the Supreme Court in 1917, uh, Buchanan ruling. And after that, um, you see cities start to formulate the idea of the zoning we have today, which is creating districts for different types of, of buildings. Um, early on, it was single-family homes in one district, multifamily homes like apartments and townhouses in another district. Um, businesses, commercial areas in another district, and then industrial uses in another one. Um, and there is quite a bit of history uh, from the people who were behind those decisions early um, that they recognized that, they, that this process could achieve the racial segregation that was no longer legal um, through another means. By not being explicit, you could still, uh, you could still create um, racially segregated areas because single-family homes would be very expensive and people who were uh, disproportionately poor, who happened to more often be black, um, couldn't afford to buy into those areas, so they had to buy into other ones. Um, and so it was sort of a, a de facto segregation. Um, that, that was, um, it was during that period after 1917 when cities around the country started adopting these zoning measures that San Diego adopted its first zoning measure um, that was in 1923. They basically copy and pasted the Los Angeles zoning measure 
Um, and then they were in a holding pattern for a couple years until the state Supreme Court said that this was legal. Uh, the city attorney for the city of San Diego at the time thought that it was illegal. They thought, thought that, that we should not adopt this ordinance because sooner or later the courts would throw it out. Uh, that didn't happen. The state Supreme Court blessed it in 1925. Uh, and then in 1926, the U.S. Supreme Court um, said that the Euclid is a, a, an area in, Cle in the Cleveland area. Um, blessed their zoning uh, ordinance, and uh, then it was kind of away we go. Cities all over the country started adopting zoning ordinances at the time. One thing I loved um, about your piece is that even as somebody who follows this closely, it knocked down kind of a lot of assumptions I probably had about the way this all came to be. One of them being, like you said, that it it was very rarely explicitly about race, even though that was you know the the outcome in so many ways. Um, and then the other thing I thought was so funny is that as this was being debated in San Diego, a lot of property owners opposed the idea um, because they thought it would crush their property values. And you have like great quotes from people in La Jolla of all places saying like, how dare you um, tell me what I can do on my own property um, and this is going to crush our property values. And now, of course, like things are totally topsy-turvy and that's like a hotbed of people who want to protect this at all costs. Yes, absolutely. I, I thought that those quotes were, were very funny that the, I would, the, the descendants of that, uh, that person in La Jolla, uh, are, is probably doing okay with that property that has, I, I imagine that they've right. inherited. Um, but yeah, so at the time in San Diego, it was a hotly debated issue. I went through the San Diego union newspaper archives and it was, it was, it was not a, uh, a, a minor thing. It was, it was not a, a boring little zoning ordinance. This was on the tip of people's uh, tongues at all times. And, you know, there was a professor from Berkeley who came down and gave a bunch of speeches. One of them had larger attendance than Padre's opening day, uh, as it, it was reported. Um, and in, in one of those speeches, he made an argument that apartments could never be a home that apartments could never be a place to raise a family. Everything in an apartment is temporary and that the only um, way to live and live well was in a single family home and that uh, he, he was doing so in, as, as a way to argue that you had to adopt a zoning measure. So race and, and, cla and class uh, distinctions were not unheard of, um, but they also weren't especially common. There was some coded language about crime. Uh, there was some coded language about um, segregation for the purposes of assimil assimilation, um, but overwhelmingly the motivation, the explicit motivation of the measure was the necessity to create places for single-family homes and single-family homes only. That was, that was the prevailing rationale um, among the proponents of the measure, um, it, to the point that in one case, uh, people in Mission Hills who were supporting uh, the creation of a single-family zone area there um, were suspected of burning down a property owner's building when he tried to open a business there. Um, the police said that they suspected arson, and it was based on the, this anger of, of, of somebody who was sort of resisting their zoning movement. So NIMBYism used to be hardcore. <laughs> yeah. So part of uh, the reason we were interested in this and that it came to mind was because we saw a potential... Uh, attack on this status quo that didn't actually become one. So it was uh, the right now, San Diego 
City Hall and staff of Mayor Kevin Faulkner are preparing this com complete communities document, this idea that in areas around transit centers or other places, pause, sorry. Okay, sure. <clears throat> Three, two. Well, one of the reasons why I think you looked at this was because of what's happening at City Hall right now. Uh, Mayor Kevin Faulkner's staff is creating a new plan for development, for how to reach our housing goals and, and address the housing shortage. And part of that is called the Complete Communities Plan. And the heart of that, if I get this right, is that around transit areas in particular, transit centers, that they sh uh, developers should be allowed to build a lot taller and add more units. And uh, that in exchange for this allowance, they will um, have to pay higher fees or otherwise help their community look better, feel better, add more infrastructure. Uh, if you give them the right to build more, they're going to make more money. So there's some capture back for that for the common good. Now, this plan is sort of marching its way through. But one thing it did or didn't do was touch single-family homes, as you pointed out in, or single-family home zones. As you pointed out in your story, 70% of the land on which you can build homes within the city of San Diego right now, so the area where you can build homes as opposed to like industrial or whatever, or roads, is set aside for single-family homes only. And that 50% of the land that would be part of this plan, this complete communities plan, is actually single-family zoned. And thus, his plan excludes single-family zones, thus excludes about 50% of the land around the areas where he says this could happen. Now, his argument was, well, he doesn't want, he didn't want to take too long to try to change that zoning and, uh, and a few other things. But it also has the benefit of not challenging this century of supremacy of single-family zoning. Yeah, so uh, I think the point is, throughout, throughout the last 100 years, the most important thing in zoning has been the protection of single-family homes. Whether you are persuaded by uh, the uh, idea that it is intended to create segregation or that intended or otherwise it has created segregation, I, I think it would be quite hard to dispute the idea that the most important thing in the city of San Diego's history of land use is the protection of single family areas, period. Um, and so leaving single family areas out of this, this signature proposal caught my attention. Um, and yeah, the argument was that you could, um, you could do this very quickly as long as you limited it to only apply to areas where you can already build apartments or townhomes because then you don't have to go through a rezoning process. And if you don't have to go through a rezoning process, you don't have to do all these uh, CEQA required studies and that sort of thing. So you could do it in months instead of years. But it does come with the, the, the uh, convenient political benefit of not angering single family homeowners who don't want their neighborhoods to change. Well, as with uh, most things, this year, it is being all reconsidered. There are a lot of people attacking single-family home zoning across the country as a relic of segregation and something that would need to be addressed to, to um, you know, repair some of the damage of, of some of these original sins of American society. 
Uh, the president clearly picked up on this movement and uh, and has you know said that if it's up to him, he'll protect these uh, areas from these invasions of people who might want to live in them. Uh, he singled he singled out that law that we've talked about over the last couple of years that was last known as SB 50 that never passed it was a bill uh, championed by Scott Weiner in in San Francisco that would have allowed some of these zones to be penetrated for the first time around job centers and transit areas that never passed and in part because of how powerful single family home zoning is politically. But there is a local activist, you interviewed him here on the show, Ricardo Flores with uh, LISC, who said, uh, you know, yes, I want to challenge that and I want to, um, I want to see things change here. Uh, what exactly was he proposing? So he has uh, pushed the city to adopt, a, you know, his own proposal, which is allow single family homeowners, people who own lots, to subdivide their property into multiple, much smaller properties. And he says that's the way you can dismantle the the preeminence of single-family home zoning because you'll get more smaller uh, homes, and because there's more of them and they're smaller, they could start to be cheaper and, and start being affordable to more middle-class people, middle-class housing, um, which will alleviate pressure on gentrifying areas. Um, his proposal is actually quite similar to a law that is being discussed in Sacramento as we speak, um, SB 1120 by State Senator Tony Atkins, who, uh, which would allow in single-family home zones, uh, anybody could build a duplex by right or could split their lot in half um, by right, by right meaning without special permission. Um, so those are two uh, attempts to address this problem that are moving through both the state and uh, that somebody's trying to push here at the local level. doesn't seem like anyone at City Hall has picked up and run with it yet. Um, and then for their part, the, city, the mayor's office says that they think they've already started to take on single-family zoning and started to break it up by heavily liberalizing granny flat laws by making it very easy to build additional granny flats you are essentially um you know breaking up the system where you can only put one home on a standalone lot um, because now you can put two or three homes on a standalone lot as long as those additional homes are granny flats so um that that's that's sort of the the mayor the other part of the mayor's response to this which is sure we're not taking on single family homes in our complete communities program but we are taking it on in our granny flat or uh you know uh, regulations in our uh, reform of granny flat regulations i think the proposal at the city level is really interesting um, and will be one to watch because if you remember back to just a few weeks ago, um, there's a big national push to decrease police budgets and it's something, you know, that presumably would fly here in San Diego with a majority or super majority Dem city council and they just couldn't get it done. Things didn't get together um, in time. And now, just like Scott mentioned, this has become like a big push of Donald Trump's, um, I will protect the suburbs, I will protect your homes, I will, you know, keep people out and stop things like these California proposals from happening. And, and again, you know, we have a super majority of Democrats and a progressive group of people who presumably want to tackle this very issue. And yet it kind of seems like this proposal doesn't have a great chance of advancing. 
Yeah, I mean, land use has really scrambled political ideology and and yeah, and par- partisan fissures. Uh, it, it, it's always been very confusing. That said, if there's anybody who really clarifies the mind of liberals about where they what side they want to be on of an issue, it is Donald Trump's ex- existence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really. I, we talked about this briefly yesterday, but there is there is a scramble going on, and and as you pointed out, it's on both sides. So on the one side. For the last 17 years, as I've managed discussions about affordable housing or about market rate, you know, what we can do about the affordable housing crisis, you know, being able to literally afford to live here, conservatives 100% of the time have said, we have to get rid of regulations on building homes. It's too hard to build homes in this community. If you built more homes, there'd be more supply, and thus the price would be um, capped and come down. And... um, and yet, you know, as we watch the, the debates go out, uh, we see conservatives on the side of the most stringent possible restrictions on housing. So, for example, right now, the state says you have to build, uh, I don't know exactly, was it 200,000 homes in San Diego County? Uh, San Diego Association of Governments is responsible for divvying out which cities should handle which part of building those uh, and that means that places like Coronado get a number of homes they're supposed to build, and they say, we can't build that many homes. So you have a guy, perhaps one of the most conservative members of the local elected officials group of Republicans in this community, Richard Bailey, who's the mayor of Coronado, and he's fighting, demanding, suing to protect his ability to prohibit literally the strongest possible regulation on housing to prohibit it, in his community, and and then uh, and so you might think, well, is it becoming the Democrats who want to build? But the Democrats have their own scrambled side, where you know they're quite worried about displacement in certain communities that might come with development. Where they, uh, you know, you have somebody like Barbara Bree, who uh, is is you know has a lot of the same type of protect your neighborhood points that we're hearing come out of out of D.C. And so it's it's not really clean break on either side of of who's for adding more homes and and who's not uh but the old lines are definitely scrambled before we wrap up i want to remind you that we're in the middle of that summer campaign we pay all these bills because people like you uh, contribute the best you can i know it's hard for a lot of folks out there but if you do have capacity Every dollar matters as we try to hit these goals and pay for the podcast, the newsletters, the investigative reporting we do. We are a nonprofit, so that's how our business works. We keep breaking news and revealing important stories about San Diego. Give what you think it's worth. So if this show and our work matters to you, and if you want Voice of San Diego to stick around for a long time, please donate today. You can do that at vosd.org support. Thanks for listening to the Voice of San Diego podcast. It's the most popular public affairs podcast in San Diego. And I saw you folks who referenced that in your donations. Thank you. You can always just say, because I want to support the most popular public affairs podcast recorded in Scott's Garage, but partly that would work. That would make me feel good in my heart. Please make sure you're subscribed to our show so you never miss an episode. Keep up with all of our stories and local news updates with The Morning Report. That is our most popular product. Comes out every Monday through Friday, every day Monday through Friday. Join thousands of informed San Diegans by getting that report every weekday. Get it at vosd.org/morning. I'm Scott Lewis, CEO and editor in chief. Andrew Keats is assistant editor. Sarah Libby's managing editor. 
This show was produced by Adriana Helnes expertly, by the way. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week.